We are two weeks away from a brand new study. Uh, we have this week and next week, Lord willing. And then um, on the 30th, I believe it is, we're going to begin a new study in the book of Galatians. So get prepared for that. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> we're going to finish up this chapter this morning. And... Um, We'll go into one verse of chapter 13. So let's read it first, <clears throat> and then we'll just walk through the passage one verse at a time. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, we're beginning in verse 14. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. <clears throat> this will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have titled this uh, sermon, Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. This week on 9-11, uh, Fox News reporter Nicole Dara posted an article online with this headline, Georgia School Brings Back Paddling to punish students when parents give consent. And the reason it caught my attention is that I was surprised that there is any school in America that uh, uses corporal punishment. And uh, second, I was surprised to learn as I read the article that corporal punishment in schools is legal in Georgia and at public and private schools in 19 states across the United States according to Global Initiative to End All Corporal Punishment for Children. That's who, uh, who she's quoting from. The article talks about how the punishment will be done with the parent's consent and only on a child's third offense, and it will be done discreetly and in a measured way. So they're trying to put some parameters on the, on the corporal punishment, but they're introducing it again. Some of you may remember, if you're as old as I am, that uh, if, when you were growing up in public schools, it was common 
to have discipline in the school for, for children who uh, disobeyed. And usually it wasn't random. It was usually the, the bad kids that were offenders and they had been warned many times. And we had a guy in our elementary school that, I mean, he would bring out a yardstick and he would whack the kids with the yardstick. It was all very measured, but it was heard throughout the school. <laughs> and it was to send fear into the hearts of everybody else. And um, <clears throat> I remember being sent to the principal's office just one time. And uh, it was for a, a terrible offense. I had, a teacher had said that we were gonna do something and uh, I rolled my eyes at her. And uh, she felt that that was completely disrespectful. And so she immediately sent me down to the principal's office. And I, it sent fear into my heart because I, I could still hear the, whack, you know, of the, uh, you know, memory in my mind of those who had been spanked before. And <clears throat> thankfully, I escaped with only a tongue lashing and not a rear lashing. And um, I don't remember ever receiving corporal punishment at school, but I do remember corporal punishment at home. And um, I'm sure many of you do too. I read an article this week from a man who said that his father believed so strongly in the uh, scripture that says, spare the rod and you spoil the child or you ruin the child. And uh, his father had a paddle made and it was hanging at the front door of his house so that when he came home from work, it was readily available to him. And on the paddle, in the large part of the paddle, it said, imprinted, imprinted in the paddle was, I need thee every hour. <laughs> My mom would sometimes send fear into our hearts <clears throat> with the phrase, wait till your father comes home. How many of you ever heard that growing up? Yeah, a few of us, all the old people. <laughs> and that includes me. And of course, what she meant was that if we did not shape up immediately, that uh, we could expect to feel the rod of reproof applied to the seat of instruction when our father came home. So Paul is saying here in chapter 12, verse 14, that he is ready to return to Corinth for the third time. The first time he came with the gospel. The second time, which is actually not recorded in the scripture, he alludes to it several times, but we don't have the details of it in the scripture. Uh, he came and it was a sorrowful visit because of the issues that he had to address with the Corinthians. This would be his third visit, and he really didn't want a repeat of, the second, of his second visit. And the phrase, wait till your father gets home, as I mentioned, is often used by mothers as a scare tactic to uh, get children to behave. But when I moved out of the house, and I lived on my own, and when I got married, and we began to have children, and we began to do things around the house, construction projects, and so on, um, the phrase, wait till your father comes home, was not scary anymore. It was actually an encouragement, because my father didn't live with me, and uh, he lived a long way from me, and so if they said, hey, we're coming, it was coming for a visit, and it was actually coming 
to help us. And so it was an encouragement, for I knew that his coming was not going to be a threat, but was going to be to my advantage. I knew he was coming to help. And Paul does not want the Corinthians to be afraid of his visit, but he wants his visit to be encouraging. And so my phrase at the beginning, my title for the sermon, Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, really is meant not as a scare tactic, but as an encouragement that, look, I'm coming, and I want to come in the right way, and I want you to be ready uh, for, my, for my coming. So let's start um, at the beginning again. He says, I am ready to come to you. So I'm going to use my father as an illustration all the way through this sermon this morning. And I want you to see how I'm comparing him to what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. And I think it'll help us understand the passage a little better. So if my dad said to me today, he called me up and he said to me today, Don, I am ready to come to you. I would welcome that. I would be encouraged by that. And I would welcome the visit. <clears throat> and the Corinthians should have felt that way um, as well. Paul was not a threat. He genuinely loved them. He genuinely wanted what was best for them. And he said, I'm ready to come to you. Next, he says, I will not be burdensome to you. The phrase, I will not be burdensome to you, means I am not coming to gain something from you. I'm not coming to gain financially from you. So as I refer to my father and my relationship to my father, um, let me tell you a little background. <clears throat> I have lived away from my parents. My mom is now passed into glory. But I've lived away from them now for 40 years. And I came to the U.S. in 1970, well, actually, 39 years. So I came in 79. Um, they live 1,000 miles away, 996.1 miles to be exact, away from where we live. And um, I have lived away from them for 40 years. So it's been our goal, our desire, to see I'll just talk about my dad, to see my dad um, at least once a year. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. It just depends on schedule, depends on a lot of things. Um, but we've tried to see him at least once a year. So I'm only going to talk about his visits to us, because they've been very faithful in coming down to visit us over the 40 years. And so when my father came to visit us, <clears throat> he never wanted to be a burden to us. It was never on his mind as he made the distance um, to come to see us. It, it was never on his mind to somehow profit from me or to make money off of me or to receive benefit from me in any way. In fact, most often when he came, we worked on some construction project at the house. And, he, and if we didn't have a construction project when he came, um, we would usually discuss future construction projects, or we would, or he would just find things to do. Oh, this room needs painted, and so he would just go at it and paint the room. One day I walked out to the garage, and it's a four-car garage, and there's all kinds of stuff everywhere in the way, and he had painted the entire garage. I go, why did you do that? He says, well, it just needed to be done. And so he was always looking for ways to help um, do things around the house, and he just did them. He came 
not to be supported by me, but rather as a support and help to me. Likewise, when Paul is saying, I will not be burdensome to you, he's saying, look, I'm not coming with the idea of gaining anything from you. I'm not looking for financial support from you. And he had proven this in the past by what he did, how he acted um, at Corinth. He made tents as a means of earning a living, not only to support himself, but to support those who were traveling with him. And so he had to work hard. You know, you remember that in those days they didn't have, he wasn't hauling around a Singer sewing machine with them. This was done by hand. And so as he made the tents, he had to work hard to produce enough to supply the need for himself and for others. Now, Paul was not opposed to receiving gifts from churches. As a matter of fact, he says that um, he was supported by the churches in Macedonia. We know from uh, his communication with the church at Philippi that they had given more than once. Uh, in fact, many times they had been very supportive of Paul and had given him money. And it's interesting to me that Paul chose to receive money from them, and he chose to receive money from the Macedonians, but he chose not to receive money from the Corinthians. And I really believe that Paul was sensitive to the Lord's leading um, when it came to his work at Corinth, that there was something different about this church. And the Lord must have laid it on his heart to say, don't take anything from them. I'm not going to tell you why necessarily, but I just don't do it. And in the end, he's looking back at it and going, I'm glad I didn't. Because now I can use this to show you that I gave, 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 gave to you, and I expected nothing in return. I'm, at this point, I'm sure he was glad he never took anything from them. And so he says next, for I do not seek yours, but you. So it, this means that Paul did not have an eye on the Corinthians' money or their possessions. He wasn't seeking their wealth, but their spiritual well-being. I'm looking out for you. That's what I desire. You, your benefit, not myself or my benefit. He didn't want what they possessed. His only interest was in helping them. Now, when my father came to visit me, I would have found it quite bizarre if he walked into the house and the first thing out of his mouth was, Don, what are you going to pay me for my visit? What can I take of yours when I leave? It never entered his mind, and it never entered my mind to suggest such a thing. He didn't come with an eye to take. He came with a heart to give. And as a matter of fact, when you stop to think about it, um, Dad doesn't like flying, so he'd never paid for an airline ticket down here. They would drive the 1,000 miles. And so if you figure out the price of gas and how much it costs per mile to drive, I think the uh, United States government, if you, if you write off uh, car expenses, I think they allow something over 50 cents per mile in tax write-offs per year. So multiply that by 1,000 miles, times two, because it's a 1,000 miles down here, a 1,000 miles back, that's a lot of money. But not only that, they stopped at a, at a hotel, um, stayed overnight, so there was hotel expenses. Not only that, it takes two days to drive. You have to have meals, and so he had to pay for the meals as well, and the snacks, and the Costco visits, and all the rest of it, you know, things that they were thinking about buying for us, I'm sure. And when he returned home, I was never in fear that I would go to my mailbox and find a bill, you know, for his trip down to meet the expenses 
a bill for services rendered, nor did he send me a request for reimbursement for expenses. It's not a cheap trip, but he wasn't seeking to be reimbursed. He was seeking to help me and to be with me. Paul had the same spirit. His service was free of charge, and the only ones benefiting from Paul's visit would be the Corinthians, not Paul. And it was quite bizarre for them to think that somehow Paul was looking to take advantage of them. But that's what they were thinking. Why do I say that? Because that's the thing that he's addressing here in this passage. You know, I am coming and I'm not taking anything from you. I will not be burdensome from you. I don't seek yours. I seek you. He's saying, look, this is bizarre that you would even think this way. So Paul then says, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And so Paul is looking at the Corinthians as his spiritual children. And he's saying, as a parent, I am looking out to lay up for you. That's the way it goes in life, not the other way around. Uh, Paul says parents ought to lay up or store up for their children here in 2 Corinthians 12, 14. You say, well, wait a minute, Don. Isn't there a passage that says that, that children ought to lay up for their parents? And yes, there is. So Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians, parents need to lay up for children. But in, 2 Tim, or in 1 Timothy 5, Paul writes to children and to grandchildren, and he says, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul is saying in 1 Timothy, look, children, grandchildren, think about this. Think about what your parents have done for you, and you lay up for them. So which is it? Is it the children who should lay up for the parents or the parents who should lay up for the children? Well, actually both are true and it depends on the context. And so this is the beautiful thing about the scripture, always look at the context. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul is talking to uh, the church and he's talking to them about the care of widows within the church. Here is a, uh, a woman who was married, her husband dies, and she's left destitute, nobody to take care of her. And Paul says, okay, is this the church's responsibility? He says, not first and foremost, the first people who should step in to take care of the parent are the children. And if there are no children, the grandchildren. Family should step in, children should step in, grandchildren should step in and take care of their widows. That's the biblical principle in 1 Timothy 5. And he says, and if they don't, they're acting worse than unbelievers, because even unbelievers do that. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul isn't referring to widows. He's talking about his ministry to uh, the Corinthians, and he's saying, look, even in the natural world, a parent takes care of their, their children. A father takes care of his children. And so they should store up. Both are true, but both are in different contexts. So the natural care a parent shows for their own minor children, it's a responsibility and the natural desire for a parent to care for their own children, making sure that they have food, 
shelter, clothing. That's really the only necessities that a child needs. And it's all that we need as well. And Paul is saying, look, I am going to take care of your, I'm going to act like a parent toward you and take care of you as a parent does. My parents did that for me. They took care of me. I had everything I needed. I had food. I had shelter. I had clothing. I had plenty more than that too. And um, if you're a parent this morning, that's what you've done for your children, right? Your children aren't starving. They have clothes on their back. They have a roof over their head. And so Paul views the Corinthians as his spiritual children, and that's the point he's making in this illustration. Paul is saying, look, this is the way I served you. I cared for you as a father cares for his children. There's never been a thought of financial gain for me. In fact, in verse 15, we looked at this in the Lord's Supper as well, it says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I look back at my childhood and I, I remember the sacrifices that my dad made as, for me as I grew up. I, I never lacked anything. Um, we had a house. We lived in that house all of my growing up days. We had food on the table. I don't know where it came from, but we had food on the table all the time. It was good food. Mom was a good cook. We had clothes, more clothes than I have today. And um, we had everything that we needed. But they did so much more for us than that. Uh, I know my dad uh, worked hard. He was in construction as I grew up. In fact, before he was in construction, uh, he did part-time construction and he also drove a uh, Mrs. Willman's, Mrs. Willman's um, bun truck, they called it. And uh, he had a, a, a a bakery route and he would deliver baked goods to different stores and when I was a little kid he'd put me in a, a basket on the engine mounts inside the van and we would drive around, unseat belted of course, drive around town as he would make deliveries and um, he worked hard to supply the need of our family. Worked hard in construction. Construction is easier in California because we have so many days of sun. But in uh, British Columbia, where it rains so much, it's, it's seasonal. And so it was harder to uh, provide. But he, they, he provided for us. He made sacrifices. And so I remember the sacrifices as I grew up. But I also um, think of the sacrifices that he's made for me as an adult. There was always a cost to him to help us with construction projects, for example. Um, he made the cabinets of the, um, that we put into our, our first house. And he, the way he did that is he worked all day long at work. He ran a cabinet business. But so as not to take away from his daily work, he came back at night and went into the shop and he made the cabinets by hand um, throughout the <clears throat> weeks before he came down, loaded them up in a, in a truck and drove it down to California. He did the same thing when we built the second house and um, he brought them down again, same, same deal. And there was a whole bunch of other stuff that he, he has done and I think of the hours and hours that he spent for our benefit. He helped in our original house refinishing the wood floors. He helped with advice and labor and it was in his heart to say, I will very gladly spend. 
Now, we paid him for the cabinets. I'll, I'll let you know that. But I didn't pay him for his labor, and he put a lot of time into it. I also remember my mom saying, Don, have him slow down. He is exhausted. He can barely move, and he'd get up in the morning. <laughs> Dad, you want a hand? Sure, yeah. <laughs> let me throw you in the hot tub. <laughs> And he would, he would work hard and beat himself up. And so not only was he saying, I will very gladly spend, I will very gladly be spent for you. And he'd go home to rest after his vacation in California. The Corinthians should have remembered how Paul had made great sacrifices to bring them the gospel and to teach them the truth of God's word. He worked tirelessly night and day to provide his own needs and the needs of those who are with him. He did not take, but he spent his resources for them, and he worked himself to exhaustion. He was spent for their souls. His concern was always for their spiritual well-being, not for his own financial gains. And, and you know, for him to even say this tells us something that we should know, and that is that when you minister, when you serve other people, it's costly. It's going to take its toll on you physically, emotionally, mentally, financially, in many, many ways. Spend and be spent. That was his heart attitude. I will very gladly, he says, spend and be spent. How about you? Is this the way you view ministry? as you serve others here at Calvary and as you serve the Lord, is that your heart attitude? You get up in the morning and go, you know what? I will very gladly spend for the people that the Lord has associated with me and I will very gladly be spent for them, for their souls. And then Paul says to them, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Have you ever helped somebody only to have them turn on you? Have you ever shown kindness to somebody only for them to show you animosity? Have you ever lifted somebody out of the pit only for them to throw you into it? There is nothing more painful than unrequited love but when you serve other people, it happens more than I care to admit. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved, Paul says. Paul's love for the Corinthians was quite obvious. But the more he loved them, the less they loved him. Paul lets it go. In the next verse, he says, but be that as it may, be that as it may, I will not burden you, or I did not burden you. Then he says something very odd here. He says, nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. So let's, talk, let's take this verse one phrase at a time here. First of all, he says with a direct statement, I did not burden you. Again, Paul is emphasizing that I took nothing from you. I wasn't interested in your money. I wasn't interested in your things. I wasn't interested in anything you had to give. I was only interested in you. But then he says, 
Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. And I think what Paul is saying here is he's actually quoting from the false teachers. The false teachers had fed the Corinthians a line that, yeah, sure, Paul didn't take anything while he was with you. We know that. We, we can admit that much. Uh, we know, we look at the finances, and we see that he didn't take a thing. But he's a con artist, this Paul, okay? What you don't know is that he's very cunning. He's very deceitful. He's very, well, he's a con artist. And we're going to tell you how he's doing this. And Paul is saying, what he's saying here is not true, but he's quoting them. He's, and he's basically saying, look, yeah, sure, I, I caught you by cunning. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's, that's really the way he's uh, trying to get it across. He's repeating the accusation against him. The false teachers had told the Corinthians, look, he's a scam artist. So here's, here's how it went down, Corinthians. Paul came to you, and he served, and he served for free, and he said, I'm never going to take any money from you. I'm never going to do anything like that. But all along, he had an ulterior motive. He had a plan that he was hatching, and he's a scam artist. He's a con artist. And so he leaves Corinth, and he makes up this story that there are needy saints in Jerusalem that need finances. And so he writes you and you say, okay, well, yeah, we're in, we're gonna, we're gonna help pay. And it wasn't to give to them, he was really looking to get it for himself. And so he pretended he didn't want your money and never took anything in person. He came up with a plan and said, okay, there are poor saints in Jerusalem. And he sent Titus to collect the money, but the money wasn't really going to go to Jerusalem at all. Paul was going to line his pockets with this money. It was going to be diverted to him. And that's how Paul is taking advantage of you, Chris, of you Corinthians. It was an accusation of fraud. It was an accusation of deceit. It was a direct attack against Paul's character, his honesty, and his love for them. So let's put it in today's terms. Suppose my father were to write to me, and he, in his letter, he's, he tells me of the evangelist who led me to the Lord. And this evangelist has been arrested, and he's been put in prison because of his preaching of the gospel. And uh, he's about to be released, but because he's been in prison, he's been left penniless, homeless, destitute. He has nowhere to live and no money for rent. Well, that really appeals to my heart, because this guy led me to the Lord. And so um, dad says, I set up a bank account so that people can donate funds and meet the immediate needs of the evangelist and his family. Would you like to help? Uh, and I write back immediately, yeah, count me in. I'm going to give generously. This guy really needs the help. I mean, he's, he's got nothing. Count me in. I'll give generously. So my dad is so thrilled with my response that he boasts about what I've said to my sisters and to my cousins. And they say, really? Don's gonna do that? He's gonna give a, a, a great gift to this guy? Count us in too, we're gonna do it too. And so they write out a check and they give it to dad, they deposit it. And they've given generously. In fact, some have given 
to the point where it hurts them financially, but they say, you know what, this is a good cause. We're gonna give, and we're gonna give generously. If Don's gonna do it, we're gonna do it, and we're gonna do it one better. And that's kind of the competition in my family, you know? So, it spurs them on. But I never write a check. I never give any money. And a long period goes by, and my father writes to me again. And he says, hey, I thought you said you were gonna give. I even boasted of your generous claim, and as a result, others gave generously. Don, the need still exists. Won't you follow through with your promise? And if you're willing to give, I will send two of my most trusted ministry coworkers to collect the money so that there's no delay and so that you will not be embarrassed before your sisters and cousins for not following through with your promise. And by sending two of my most trusted coworkers, there will always be a chain of custody in place as the cash is moved from there to here. Now suppose I bring this letter and I share this letter with you. And I say, look, this is what my father has just written to me. And you come up to me after the meeting's over and you go, oh yeah, your dad is a crook. I can see right through this scam. This is so clear, can't you see it? Can't you see it? And I go, well, yeah, but my dad wouldn't do that. Look at his history with me. Look at the way he's cared for me over 40 years. Look at the way he's given of himself. Look at the way he's spent, has spend, he spends money and has been spent for me. And they go, are you so blind you can't see what he's doing here? He's, there's no evangelist that was put in prison. I never read about it in the newspaper. I never heard about this guy. Are you kidding me? Your dad is a con artist. He's a scammer. And um, this is payback time, Don, for all the time he spent on construction projects around your home. And he came up with this grandiose scheme of getting money from you, making you feel compassionate for this evangelist and sympathetic to the cause. This is just a great scam to get you to part with your money. He set up this fund so that you will give but it's not gonna go to an evangelist and his family. Your dad is going to keep it for himself. What a con artist. And imagine that I am so gullible that I actually believe my friends. Can you imagine? That I actually believe what they're telling me. And I begin in my heart to despise my own father for what he's doing as a con artist. What a bad guy. What have I done? I've totally lost sight of the truth. I forget the long history of generous behavior to me. And I begin to question his character and his honesty and his love. Now notice that my father is not asking anything for himself. In all the years of his visits, he's never sought financial gain. Now he is asking for a voluntary gift not for himself, but for a needy saint. Can you imagine how painful it would be for my father to hear from me or from others here at the church that Don now thinks you're a con artist 
that he wants nothing more to do with you. Can you imagine how painful it would be for him to hear this? Terrible accusations, especially after all he had done for me. Imagine the pain Paul was feeling as he wrote to his spiritual children in Corinth and reminded them that he had never taken anything for himself. He had previously written to them about the need in Jerusalem, um, of the saints there in Jerusalem who sacrificed everything for the sake of the gospel. You know, I think he mentioned this uh, in 1 Corinthians, and he says, look, you would not even have the gospel had it not been for those saints in Jerusalem. Those saints in Jerusalem lived in such a way that they lost their jobs, they lost their homes, they lost everything in life just so the gospel could go out. And now they are suffering. Now they are suffering from being destitute and without work. Can't you give? You wouldn't even know Christ if it wasn't for them. And so that's what Paul appealed to in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. And out of love for the saints in Jerusalem, Paul appealed to the Corinthians and other churches to give generously. And the Corinthians were the first ones in line saying, yeah, count us in. We're going to give generously. And it was because of the Corinthians' statement that other churches gave, just like my imaginary story of my sister's giving. The Corinthians were first in line. They boasted, and Paul boasted of their promise to other churches, and the other churches gave. But the false teachers at Corinth um, messed with their heads, messed with their thinking, messed with their uh, thoughts of Paul. And uh, they used this as an occasion to question Paul's motive and character and actually suggested that Paul was a crook, a scam artist, a con artist. Paul was collecting the money for himself. It's an attack against Paul. And it was outrageous. So then in verse 17, Paul says, did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? And the implied answer is, of course not. Who were the men that Paul sent to them? Well, first of all, there was Titus, verse 18. And then another unnamed brother in verse 18 as well. I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Paul had previously written to the Corinthians about Titus and this other brother in chapter in 2 Corinthians 8. And let me just read it to you. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. So Paul is saying there, Titus cares for you in the same way I care for you. For he not only accepted the exhortation... But being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. What does that mean? It cost Titus something from himself financially to go to Corinth to help them out. And then to be one uh, to collect the money or the offering and to bring it to the church in Jerusalem. And we have sent him... Oh, sorry, we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. What does that mean? That the other brother that is coming with him is known widely by all the churches and is praised. In other words, he is a well-respected brother. 
And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. So he's saying that not only does he have a good reputation in the churches, but the churches at large recommended him as one of the ones to travel to Corinth to collect the gift, to be above board, a respected man in all the churches. Avoiding this, Paul says, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord but also in the sight of men. And we have sent <clears throat> with them our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things but now much more diligent because of the great confidence we have in you. And Paul is basically saying, look, the reason I sent two brothers, in fact there's probably three here, that have come to, to gather the gift, these are respected men, well thought of in the churches, we're doing this so that no one can point an accusing finger at us and blame us for doing anything as a con artist, anything that would suggest uh, that all of this is on the up and up, that they are going to come together and together so that there is a, there is a clear chain of uh, movement of the money to Corinth, I mean to uh, Jerusalem, so that everybody knows that everything has been done properly and in, um, in a reputable way. So not only do these men have the endorsement of the Apostle Paul, but they have the endorsement of all the churches. The chain of custody of funds was safeguarded by having two or three trustworthy brothers handling the funds. And so Paul asks in verse 18, did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? And the question is to remind the Corinthians that just like Paul, Titus did not seek financial gain for himself either. He worked hard for the supply of his own needs and actually volunteered to spend and be spent uh, for them. He went out of his way and gave of himself, not to, do, uh, not to line his own pockets. So then in verse 19, Paul writes these things for their edification. He says, again, do you think we excuse ourselves to you? There's no reason for him to do that. He's saying... Um, We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. So you have to, again, remind yourself of what was happening in Corinth. The church was riddled with contentions, false accusations, and it was upsetting the entire church. And the fellowship was being destroyed by the false teachers who were, who were making these false accusations against Paul. And they, having believed a lie, had been deceived. And they were torn down as believers. They were brought low. And Paul says, my goal here is to raise you back up. It's to edify you. It's to bring you back up to where you should be and be concerned uh, for me. So, the third visit. This is the wait till your father gets home part. Paul's third visit was delayed, but now he must come. Imagine, again, thinking of my father, what it would be like for my father, who has given so much to me, so much of himself for me, and imagine that he heard that I believed he was a con artist. 
and it was, I, that he was trying to uh, get money from me to give to a destitute evangelist only to pocket the money for himself, what would be going through his mind? Are you kidding me that my son would actually believe that about me? And so he writes, I'm coming to visit you again. Now do I dread this visit? I shouldn't. If I know my father, I shouldn't dread it. Let's just say he used the same words as the Apostle Paul. For I fear lest, and he's writing to me, for I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. What is he saying? Look, I want to come and visit you again, and I want there to be happy fellowship. I want to help you. I want to care for you just as I have in the past. But I'm afraid that you've been so warped in your thinking that I will not even be welcomed by you. I shall not find you such as I wish. What would be my wish? That I would be received warmly by my own son and that your arms of love would be wide open to me. That's what he wished. Paul continues on, uh, or let's just say it's my dad. I'm also afraid, he continues, that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. In other words, those dreaded words, wait till your father comes home. In other words, that I'm coming not, with, uh, not, not for a time of joy, but for a time of um, discipline and correction. What should be a time of peaceful fellowship has been destroyed because of my faulty, erroneous thinking of my father. And this is what Paul is really saying to his spiritual children. I'm coming again. And I sure hope that it's a good, a good time. Seriously, what's it going to be like when I return? And so Paul, what are the two things that he is likely to find when he comes to Corinth? And he, he states them here in the next uh, two verses. The two things that concern him. A church that is split apart by sinful conflict. In verse 20, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and tumults. There are eight sins that he lists here. And in these eight sins, it, they really have to do with the results of the Corinthians having believed a lie about Paul. They believed the lies of the false teachers. And the lies began to split apart the church. Jesus said that the world would know that we are Christians. And the striking feature that would be paramount in people knowing that we are Christians is our love for one another. And that sure wasn't the case at the church of Corinth. The Bible says, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians, love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And Paul was afraid that these false teachers had caused such a rift that the church was now anything but loving. As a parent, if you were to walk into the playroom of your house and you saw your own children arguing, throwing barbs at each other and perhaps objects too, 
and physical punches, and if you heard them saying nasty things about one another and whispering lies to each other, and you saw nothing but an uproar of bad behavior among them, what would you say and what would you do to your children? No father wants to find his children in that condition. But if he does, he better take action or else they will tear each other apart. And Paul said, look, I don't want to find you this way. I I don't want to come to Corinth and find you like this. A church split apart, torn up, in turmoil over sins of believing a lie. It's anything but love. And then he says the second group of people he may find there is a church filled with people pretending to be Christians yet are practicing sin. He may may arrive to find something that would sadden him deeply and bring him down. This is what he says in verse 21. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me. That is, he will bring me down among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. The internal fighting among the saints has led them to ignore the fact that there are people in their midst who are practicing sins, they're claiming to be Christians, and yet they are practicing immoral behavior. Sins of uncleanness. That means that they are immoral in their thoughts and in their actions. There are some who are practicing these things. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. It's very interesting to me, and if you do a study on this, you'll find that it's, it's true, that very often when a person changes in their doctrine, when a person believes false doctrines, it also leads to bad behavior. And it often leads to immorality. And so he also addresses the sin of fornication, which includes premarital sex, adultery, and any form of sexual sin. False doctrine and sexual sins are often closely connected. In 1 Thessalonians, um, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Third, he says, the sins of lewdness or lewd and lascivious behavior. And this refers to any and all forms of sexual indecency, lustful behavior. It can refer to molestation, Uh, or forms of indecent exposure, all kinds of things. But it's just sort of a broad scope of of, uh, sexual perverted things. And it shows, Paul, by saying these things, Paul is saying, look, these things are being practiced in the church by people who are claiming to be Christians. And nothing is being done about it. The false teachers had set the church on a crash course to failure. And in Jude it says this, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Were these people saved? It's doubtful. I'm not condemning the entire church of Corinth. Obviously, I think the first group of people who were involved in disputes and bitterness and animosity and fighting, infighting and all the rest of it, they were probably believers who were caught in a lie. And Paul needed to address that. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul makes no bones about it when it comes to those who practice these sins that they are living a lie. They are not true believers. Can can a believer fall into these sins? Of course they can. A believer can fall into any sin. But a believer will ultimately repent of their sin and turn back to the Lord. And that is really what Paul is talking about here. Such sinful behavior needs to be addressed. And so in chapter 13, verse 1, this is what Paul calls for. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And Paul is really saying, look, Corinthians, it's time to judge the sin in your midst. The the warning was, wait till your father comes home. I'm coming. Wait till I get there. I'm coming. And what's going to happen is you, Corinthians, are going to address the issues in the church. Not me. I'm not coming as your judge, but I'm coming to be with you. And address these sins. Address them carefully. And, and um, every one of these cases must be carefully examined one at a time. Each offend, offender will have his day and be carefully examined at that time. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. We're not going to listen to innuendos or stories or things like that. We're going to hear case by case, point by point, what is really happening in the lives of these individuals. And make the judgment based on that. Paul underscores the necessity of careful and thorough examination of the facts when it comes to church discipline and correction. Correction is coming. And we're going to learn more about that next week. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for how careful the Apostle Paul was in his uh, life and ministry to the Corinthians. And we think of the desire that he had for their good and for their best. We think of how he gave to them. He spent and was spent for them, Lord. We pray that that would be true of our lives as well, Lord, as we think of ministering to the saints, that it would, that it would cost us something, that it would cost us in um, our service, in our time, in our energies, uh, financially, and every other way, Lord, that we might serve willingly and gladly because we are serving you. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.